to open up your word. And we come and ask that you would speak to us out of your word. We ask that you would enable us to interpret the circumstances in our life, not by our feelings, not by our own understanding, but by the light of your word. And again, Father, I ask that tonight you would grant us faith, faith to believe what you have spoken. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you remember, our overarching goal, my overarching goal for these eight sessions comes from Acts 14.22. I'm not going to turn there, but it's where Paul and Barnabas are seeking to encourage new believers to strengthen them, and to encourage them to continue in the faith. Paul and Barnabas want these new believers to make it all the way to the end. And how do they encourage and how do they strengthen their faith? By communicating an interesting message. And the message goes like this. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And that's really what we want to talk about in this series We're thinking about the purposes of God and suffering. It's in fact kind of how we ended last week when we said, my suffering is part of God's path for me that leads to eternal glory. Now, just so you have a little bit of a big picture idea of where we're going in this series, if you're like me, you kind of like to know the roadmap. um, I'm kind of thinking of it in two big parts. The first part is God is going to do a work in you through suffering. He's going to use suffering in your, your life to sanctify you, to change you, to transform you. But then God's going to use suffering in your life to be a blessing to others. He's going to work through you. He's going to equip you to minister to others. He's going to use suffering in your life to put you on display in front of others. And so he's going to work in you. He's going to work through you We're in that very first section still where we're thinking about how God uses suffering to sanctify us, to deepen our faith. Yet last week we thought about how God uses suffering to prove and sustain the genuineness of our faith. Remember that last week? And today we're thinking about how God's going to use suffering to expose sin in our lives. That's what we're going to think about. And how that really goes right alongside sustaining our faith. So we can turn from our sin and turn to God and keep trusting in him. Now, before we dive into our passage for tonight, I want to spend a little bit of time defining what do I mean by suffering? I'm using the word suffering. I'm using the word trial. I'm using the word difficult circumstances. I'm I'm using various uh, words for this. I'm using them synonymously. But what do I mean by suffering? I spend a little bit of time here. Uh, Scripture uses multiple words to speak of suffering, trials, tribulation. Uh, We've encountered a few of those already. Uh, If you think about our key verse from Acts 14, 22, uh, you'll see the word tribulation there, which literally means a pressing together, a pressure situation. And so when the Scripture uses the word tribulation, it's from the Greek word sleepsis, It speaks of the difficult circumstance itself, the pressure situation. But Scripture also uses the word suffering. So it uses tribulation, but also uses suffering. The Greek word paskos, uh, tribulation, pasko. 
which emphasizes the pain or distress that we experience when we're encountering sleepsis, when we're encountering tribulation. So the tribulation focuses more on the circumstance, the pressure. Suffering is my experience of the pressure, the pain, the distress I'm going through. And then you've noticed last week, Peter, and this week, James, they like to use the word trial. And the word trial is an interesting word, and it speaks of any circumstance that tests the true nature or character of something. It tests whether or not I trust God or not. And so I'm putting those three ideas together in my definition. You have it there in your notes. Suffering is any circumstance in my life that is difficult, painful, or distressing and which tests whether or not I trust God. So I'm keeping it very, very broad, as you know. Uh, very broad. I am not trying at this point in our study, I will limit it at other points in our study, but at this point, I am not restricting the concept of suffering to a particular threshold or severity, you know, it's just suffering. Oh, that's just, that's not suffering. I don't really care whether it's little or big. I'm, I'm, I'm putting it all under the umbrella, nor am I restricting it to a particular type or kind of suffering, such as persecution for one's faith. So let me just lay it out. Losing your car keys and being beaten for your faith are clearly not on the same level. You agree? <laughs> okay, we're talking about two different things. And yet, I believe that God can use either one to prove and sustain our faith. He can use the smallest suffering, trial, distressing circumstance, the greatest. He uses it all. It all, it all is working out for good in the lives of God's people. And so I will just say this. There is not a single difficult, painful, or distressing circumstance in your life for which God does not have a good and loving purpose. There's not one distressing circumstance in your life for which God does not have a good and loving purpose. I don't care how big, how small the suffering. God is sovereign over it, and God has a purpose in it. I want to underline something I said last week. I, I ended by saying that there are no unnecessary trials for the believer. And if you think about it, it's an impossibility. If you've been born again, if you've received life from God, you've been made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are loved by God more deeply than you can fathom. You're loved by God more deeply than you can fathom. Which means that he's seeking your ultimate good. He might not be giving you what you want, but he is giving you what is good for you. Think about this. The only reason God ordains suffering in your life or in my life, and I'm going to be strong here, it's because it would actually be unloving for God to withhold it. it would actually be less loving for God to withhold it than to give it, which is why he gives it. He only gives what is good. That's putting it in a strong way, isn't it? I remember a friend, this was a long time ago, a friend who had an accident and tore up his shoulder. 
just made a bloody mess of his shoulder, full of dirt and gravel. Came home, his dad was a doctor, so instead of going to the emergency room, his dad said, we got this. And if I remember, if I remember right, his dad, what I remember, his dad took this scrub brush and some kind of antiseptic thing and just went to town to scrub that raw flesh. Now, if you think about it, it would have actually been less loving for the father to leave it alone. Why? Because there's something worse than being scrubbing raw flesh with a brush. It's infection. Perhaps amputation or worse. God is a God of love. We know. Scripture says, we know. Romans 8. That all things work together for good to those who love God. God is working. God causes all things to work together for good. Now, you have there in your notes, what about suffering that results from sinful choices? And I felt that in this series, it would be important for me to address this question. So we're just, this is just introduction. We're still kind of setting the stage, but I feel like it's important that we touch on this and, and, For our purposes right now, I'm going even as far as to say, I don't care if it's the result of a sinful choice that you've made. If your suffering is a result of a consequence of your sin, I don't care if it's the result of someone else's sin. Is it possible for you to suffer because of someone else's sin? Absolutely. God can still use it. God can still work through it. Let me just say three things about this. First of all, Scripture is clear that there is both righteous suffering and unrighteous suffering. In fact, next week, Lord willing, we're going to think about righteous suffering. We want to think about that because it's a big topic. Today, we're actually thinking a little bit more about unrighteous suffering. But the reality is there is unrighteous suffering. That is, Scripture is very clear, it's possible for us to suffer for having done the wrong thing. If I lie and cheat on my taxes... The IRS might catch up with me and give me a big fine or worse, put me in jail. And that would be the consequence of my sin, right? And we don't want to confuse two things. God can forgive me, but I could still experience these consequences. Those are two different things. I can be forgiven by God and still experience consequences for my sin. You with me? So number one, there is unrighteous suffering. It's possible to suffer for doing the wrong thing. Number two, though, is important. Sin does not overcome or overwhelm God's grace or God's plan in your life. Sin does not overwhelm God, God's grace or God's plan. Where sin abounded, what abounded much more? God's grace, right? Some people have this idea that you begin the Christian life on God's plan A, and if you goof up real big, you end up on plan B. But let me be really, really clear. There is no plan B with God. There's no plan B. The very idea of a plan B is an affront to God because it assumes that you have to make some kind of adjustment because of unforeseen circumstances, and there are no unforeseen circumstances with God. And so there's never a plan B with God. 
So our sin does not surprise God. It doesn't catch God off guard. Oh, what do I do now? Okay, so there is unrighteous suffering. It's possible to suffer for doing the wrong thing. Secondly, that sin doesn't surprise God, doesn't overwhelm God. And so thirdly, I'm just going to make this point. Suffering can both be a consequence and discipline for my sin. Okay, Suffering can be a consequence for sin I've committed. And at the same time, it can be used by God to bring about his purpose in my life. That makes sense? I just wanted to underline that. Again, God causes all things to work together. Not some things, but all things. And that even includes our mistakes, our greatest failures, even the consequences of our sin can be used by God in our lives. Now, I'm, I'm keeping things very broad at this point. I know that later in this, these sessions, I'll get more specific. But at this point, I'm keeping it broad. Now, that's what we're going to be thinking about tonight. You see, one of the ways that God sustains our faith is by purifying our faith. He sustains it by purifying it. And he does that by exposing sin in our lives. And that's a gracious thing. He exposes the sin Not to mock us, not to laugh at us, but that we might turn from it and experience life. You can't turn from sin that you're not aware of. And so God at times uses suffering to shine a spotlight on areas of sin in our life. Let's turn to James, James chapter 1. And we're going to be looking particularly at verses 13 through 18. Now I realize that we're kind of dropping into the middle of a section um, it's, a, I believe, a whole section that is on suffering, that's on trials. Uh, we're dropping in to the final part of that section. Um, but I'm going to read a little bit of the first part just to set ourselves up. James is writing to Jews in the uh, first century. This is considered to be one of the earliest books of the New Testament ever written. Uh, so he's writing to Jewish believers at this point, it's possible that there not, are not a lot of Gentile believers because the first church was primarily made up of Jewish believers. Um, he's writing, it seems, as you read the whole book, that there is in the church this profession of faith, but there's not really this practice of faith. People are saying, I'm a Christian, but they're not really living it out. And James is concerned, and he writes this letter to say, okay, how can you test whether or not your faith is real? And where he goes first is suffering, trials. So read with me, chapter 1, verse 2. I'm going to skip the introduction. Verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Remember how we talked about last week. Is my suffering an obstacle or is it a pathway? He says, view it as a pathway. Rejoice in it. Consider it all joy. Knowing that the testing of your faith, there it is. Faith is tested through what? Trials. That's where we were last week. So in a sense, we don't have to spend too much time here because we talked about this last week. And the testing of your faith produces endurance, right? God wants to sustain our faith to the end and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. That is, God uses suffering to bring about spiritual maturity in our lives. 
Verse 5, he says, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. I still think that's the context of trials. In the midst of trials, often you're like, what do I do? Ask God, right? He has wisdom. I'm going to skip that section. Verse 9, he says, but the brother of humble circumstances to glory in his high position. The rich man is to glory in his humiliation. I think what's going on there simply is, hey, when you're going through suffering, if you're really rich, the tendency is to lean on your own resources. I got this. I can figure this out. James says, don't do that. If you're really poor, you don't have a lot of circumstance, a lot of resources. When you're going through suffering, you're like, poor me, I'm undone. And you despair. And he says, poor man, don't despair. Rich man, don't boast in your earthly resources. But what? Both of you boast in the resources you have in God, right? Lean on God. Okay, we're going to skip that section, verse 9 through 11, and we come to verse 12. Are we doing okay? I'm kind of surveying us up to where we're going to plunge in here. Verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. I love that. Blessed is the man. Fortunate is the man. Happy is the man. Happy is the man who has a happy life. No. Happy is the man who has a pain-free life. No. Happy is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Why? For once he has been approved. When are you approved? What's he talking about? He's talking about that day that we were talking about last week, right? That day we stand before Jesus. That day that he returns and we receive everything that's promised. Once he's been approved, what does he say? He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That's exactly what we were saying last week. If you persevere in your faith to the end, you receive everything that God has promised. And what does God do? God uses suffering to sustain our faith to the end. So in a sense, he's saying the same thing we're saying in 1 Peter, which is why we go quickly over this section. And now we're going to read verses 13 through 18. You all hanging with me? With me? Okay. Verses 13 through 18. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Perseverance does not mean perfection. Persevering to the end does not mean living a sin-free life. We are going to experience failure. We're going to experience defeat in the midst of suffering. Perseverance doesn't mean we won't sin. What it does mean is that every time we fail and every time we sin, we confess it, we repent of it, and we keep trusting God. 
No matter what happens in our life, we keep turning back to God, back to God, back to God, back to God. That's what perseverance is talking about. And now we come to this passage, verses 13, and he begins with, I divide this passage into three sections. The lie, we're going to look at the lie, we're actually going to look at three lies that we believe. And then we're going to look at the truth, both about our sin and about God. And then finally, verse 18, the proof, the proof. So let's begin with the lie. Times of trials are also times of temptation. Pretty much every time. Times of trial are times of temptation. In fact, as a side note, it's very interesting in this passage here, James chapter 1, the word trial and the word temptation are actually coming from the same root word in the Greek. Perasmos. It can mean trial or it can mean temptation. And so the context determines what we're talking about here. But there's a bit of a play on words going all the way through chapter 1. Trials are times of temptation. God uses trials to produce spiritual maturity. But God also uses trials to expose spiritual immaturity. Places, areas in our lives where we don't trust him. You remember last week we used the illustration of how do you tell? How can you tell that you have genuine gold? Remember that illustration? What do you do? You apply heat, right? And if it's fake gold, what does it do? It turns turns black, right? It says it might even start to smoke. If it's real gold, it'll start to shine brighter and brighter. And we like to think that things are black and white. Either it'll all shine brighter or it'll all turn darker. But it's not always like that. It's a little more complicated in our lives. As God puts heat on our lives, our lives begins to shine brighter. The gold starts to shine brighter. But often there's also a few spots that start to pop out darker. Does that make sense? It's not all just perfectly bright, there's often spots that get exposed. And part of God proving and sustaining our faith is God purifying our faith, exposing our sin so we might turn from it and experience life. Trials can tempt us in all sorts of ways. We can be tempted to be angry. Have you ever responded in anger to a difficult circumstance? I have. We can be tempted to withhold forgiveness, especially if the suffering is coming from someone sinning against us. We withhold forgiveness. We can be tempted to feel sorry for ourselves. And then that can cause us to indulge in more sinful behavior. You know, I deserve this and that because we feel sorry for ourselves. But under all of this, there is a temptation in the midst of trial to blame God rather than to trust him. To blame God rather than to trust him. Think of the story of Naomi and Ruth in the Old Testament. You remember Naomi, she left her country because there was a famine in the land with her husband and her two sons, and they went to Moab. And in Moab, her two sons got married, but over the course of time, her husband died, her two sons died, and it was Naomi left with her two daughters-in-law. And one of them goes back to her family Ruth decides to stay with Naomi. And if you read chapter 1, it's really interesting. Naomi, five times in chapter 1, Naomi says things like, the Almighty is against me. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. 
There's this theme of God is against me. It's fascinating. Maybe you've noticed it in your life. I've noticed it in my life. In the midst of difficult circumstances, we don't tend to doubt God's power. You know, even unbelievers blame God when things go bad. (laughs) All of a sudden, there is a God, and he's powerful, and he controls my circumstances. Oh, yeah, I'm glad you figured that out. Um, But what do we tend to doubt? God's goodness. Not his power, but his goodness. God's against me. There's, There's this temptation in the midst of suffering to accuse God, to blame God. To say, God, you're evil in some way. You're doing the wrong thing. And at the root of this temptation are several lies. So here it is, first lie. The very first lie is to believe that my difficult circumstances are causing me to sin. There's the first lie. The first lie is to believe my suffering is causing me to sin. My difficult circumstances are making me sin. If the people around me were not so irritating, I wouldn't get angry with them. I wouldn't be an angry person. I'm an amazing guy if you treat me the way I want to be treated. If I had had loving parents when I was growing up, I wouldn't treat my kids this way. But I didn't. I I had horrible parents. I don't know any better. We blame the circumstances that are making me sin. If only my boss would give me a raise, I wouldn't be so half-hearted at work. (laughs) If I didn't feel sick, if I didn't have all these health issues, I wouldn't be a complainer. If I had financial security, then I wouldn't cheat on my taxes. And I would even tithe. I'd be a good person. We might not verbalize these things, but in our hearts, there's a strong temptation to think this way. Is there not? That if I had optimal circumstances, I would be perfect. And that's a lie. It's a lie. So there's the first lie. Suffering is causing me to sin. My circumstances are causing me to sin. The first lie. Second lie. Second lie goes like this. Hmm, who's in control of my circumstances? Oh, God. God is causing me to sin. If you believe the first, it's logical to believe the second. Who's causing me to sin? God. Why? He's behind the circumstance. He's in control of the circumstances. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. God is causing me to sin. Who put this boss into my life? Who put these people into my life? Who gave me these parents? Who put me in this financial straits? Who caused these health issues in my life? God! So God, you're causing me to sin. You're seeking to destroy me. God, you're evil. You're not good. Suffering will take you there. It will take you there. And then the third lie. The third lie goes like this. I'm not responsible for my sin. It's the logical conclusion of the first two lies. If the suffering made me sin and God put the suffering in my life, then I'm not responsible for my sin. We're talking about lies here, not truth. (laughs) Don't get me wrong here. 
I'm really a good person. I've just give, been given a bad lot in life. And then we deflect the blame off of ourselves and onto others. Everything, anything around us. Are, are you with me? Like This is a very real temptation in the midst of suffering. It's so easy to begin to blame God for creating circumstances in which it feels almost impossible not to sin. And if you do so, you will soon become embittered towards God. And if you become embittered towards God, it will undermine your capacity to trust God. Because you can't be angry with God and trust God at the same time. It's not possible. And James is adamant, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God has no evil intentions towards you. None whatsoever. He is not seeking your destruction, but rather your salvation. And when God sends trials into your life, his purpose is never to tempt you to sin. That is never his purpose. It is not to tempt you. It is at times to expose sin in your life, but not to tempt you to sin. So what's the truth? We turn to the truth. James begins to speak truth, and in typical James fashion, he pulls no punches. James is one of those direct guys. He likes to just bring it out. Bring it right out into the open. And so he says in verse 14, here's where it comes from. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lusts. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So the first thing James tells us is that God cannot be blamed for sin. But then he says, James, then he says, temptations don't come from our circumstances. Temptation comes from our sinful hearts that desire and want the wrong thing. That is, we have hearts that want things. Circumstances, you could say, are the context of temptation, but they are not the cause of temptation. Circumstances do not make you sin. They expose our hearts. They expose sinful desires within us. They expose things in our hearts that are contrary to God and his will. When you sin, James basically is saying, don't blame God. Don't blame others. Who do you blame? Blame yourself. Look within. Look at your own heart. And ask yourself the question, what do I want so badly that I'm willing to sin in order to get it? He's saying here, where does this this sin come from? It comes from our hearts, verse 14. We're enticed by our own lusts. That's a strong word for desire. So what do I want so badly that I'm willing to sin in order to get it? God does not tempt us even when he brings trials, 
difficult circumstances into our lives. Rather, he uses the trials in his love and mercy and goodness to expose our sin and lead us to repentance. I'll say it again. Circumstances do not make us sin. They expose our sinful hearts. And then you read verse 16. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Literally, stop being deceived. Because one of the biggest deceptions of our hearts is to believe that we're not responsible for our sin. It's one of the biggest deceptions in our hearts is to say it's not my fault. (laughs) It's not me. I mean, it started right at the beginning, right? With Eve blaming Adam, Adam blaming Eve, and Eve ultimately blaming God, the wife you gave me. We defend ourselves by blaming everyone and everything around it. But freedom comes. Healing comes. Restoration comes. When? It comes when first we own our sin. First thing you have to do is own it. I did that. I spoke those words. I mistreated that person. That was me. You own it. And secondly, you confess it. That was wrong. Speak the truth about it. That was wrong. That was sinful. And in confessing it, you confess it to God. God, I sinned against you. Forgive me. You might confess it to someone if someone is involved in your sin. Ask for forgiveness. So you own it, you confess it, and then you turn from it. Are there concrete steps you can take to turn from that sin? Take those concrete steps. James speaks the truth to us about our sin, but he also speaks the truth to us about God. Look at verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light, with whom there is no variation of shifting shadow. See, the the second lie is to believe that God's evil. And James is countering that second lie right here. And he tells us God is fundamentally good. And he's going to point to God's actions and to God's character. You have that in your notes, God's actions and God's character. God is a giver. What are his actions? He's a giver. Verse 17, every good thing, what? Given. Comes from what? From God, from above. God is the source of every good thing. His gifts are good, we're told. That is, they're useful, they're beneficial, they're perfect. They're complete. There's nothing lacking in what God gives. God always gives completely, fully. God is pictured as giving us what is best out of a heart of generosity. And it's hard to read these words and not think of God's greatest gift of all. We talked about in the first session, right? The Lord Jesus Christ. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. He gave. What did he give? He gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So God is a giver. You see God's actions, God's 
God, James also points to God's character. He's good. Not, he's not just good because he gives good gifts. He's good because that's who he is. That makes sense? It's his character. And so James says, it's interesting, it's the only, I think only here in the whole Bible where he speaks of being the father of lights. It's interesting name there for God. He's the father of lights. Light and darkness are often used in Scripture to speak of good and evil. They're metaphors for good and evil. If you read in 1 John, we read that God is light, and in him there is what? No darkness at all, right? And James is, in a sense, saying the very same thing. God is the source of all that is good. And not only is God the father of lights, but he doesn't change. There's no variableness. There's no change in him. He doesn't have good days and bad days. <laughs> he doesn't have good days where he's feeling generous and then days where he's feeling crabby, like you and I. But there's no change in him. He's good. There's a constant, constant to his goodness. He goes a step further. God's goodness, unlike the sun, never even casts a shadow. The sun casts a shadow. But God and his goodness, God is such light in such a way that there's never even a shadow that is cast by his goodness. There's never a dimming of his perfect goodness that might cause him to tempt us. There is never in God even the appearance of such a thing. Now you might be thinking, what if I find it really difficult to believe that God is good? What if I find it difficult to believe in his perfect and unchanging goodness towards me. And I would just say, I understand. I get it. It can be really hard to believe in the goodness of God. It can. It takes faith. Faith is listening to what God says and building a life on it. The word of God says he's good, and I'm going to hold fast to that. But James wants to help us, and so he gives us something, in a sense, to sink our teeth into it. And so we get verse 18. Look at verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruit among his creatures. James, in a sense, is saying, if you're struggling with believing God's goodness towards you, think back to the time when God saved you. Go back to the beginning of your relationship with God and think back to how God worked in your life. Look, look at what he says. He says here in verse 18, in the exercise of his will. The exercise of his will. In other words, what James is saying is this was God's desire. This is what God wanted to do. This was God's choice. This was God's will. What was God's will? To bring you forth. What is, what is the language of bringing forth here? It's the language of regeneration. It's the language of new birth. It's the same language that Peter used in 1 Peter to Born again. It's, it's, it's speaking of being brought out of a, a state of death into a state of life. God did this. In the exercise of his will, he made us alive. You go back to verse 14 and 15. What did our will produce? What do our lusts produce? 
our sinful desires produce sin, and sin produces death. But here there's this great contrast. What does God's desire produce? God's desire produces life within individuals, new birth, new life. And how does he bring about this life? Look at verse 18. He brought us forth by what? By the word of truth, by the message of the gospel. A message of a Savior who went to a cross on our behalf, taking our sins upon himself so that we might be free. And then he says this, so that we would be a kind of first fruit among his creatures. Why did God do all this? Why did God save us? That we might be the first of many more to come. It's not just about you. Look around. Look around you. God desires that what God has done in your life, he does in many more lives. You know, are you struggling to, you doubting God's goodness? Look at what God's done in your life. Go back to what he's done, how he saved you from your sin. Look around, even tonight, at the people around you. And look at what God's done in other people's lives. And come to the realization that God is for you. How can such a God, who's worked in such an extraordinary way, how could he ever turn around and seek to destroy you? How does that even make sense? How could a God who has lavished so much love upon us turn around and seek to destroy us? That's Paul's logic in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God's on the team, who can stand against us? (laughs) We got it. How do I know God is for me? The very next line. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's how I know he's for me. How shall he not with him freely give us everything? Everything we need. Well, let's bring this to a close. God is going to use suffering in your life and in my life to expose sin going to use suffering to shine a spotlight on areas in our lives where we don't trust him. And that's God's grace towards us. I just want to underline that. That is God's kindness towards us. When God exposes, when God makes you aware of sin in your life, that's God's kindness towards you. Why? Because sin produces death. Sin produces death, and you can't turn from sin if you're not aware of it. And when God makes you aware of sin in your life, it's so that you might turn from it and experience life. Never doubt God's goodness. We might not understand all that God's doing in our lives, but we must not doubt his goodness. If we doubt God's goodness, we are undermining our capacity to trust him. Because we will not trust God if we do not believe he is fundamentally good. It's not possible. You will not trust someone if you don't believe they're good. 
And so the question tonight is, do you trust God? Will you trust God? Will you believe his word? Perhaps the Lord has put his finger on a sin in your life, even tonight as we're speaking. How do you respond? Again, own it. Don't blame circumstances, people around you. Own it. That's me. I did that. Confess it to God, to others. Then turn from it. What are practical ways I can turn from this sin in my life? Let's bow our heads. And again, I'm just going to give us a minute or two. We've, we've heard the word of God. What is God saying to you? How is God speaking to you? And what is he asking you? How is he asking you to respond? Father, we thank you again tonight for your loving purposes in our life. We thank you that you are for us, not against us. Enable us to believe that by faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.